चढ़ाना फूल जाने मन मगर Salam and welcome everyone to another episode of the Ajam Media Collective podcast. This is your host Ali Karjuravari together with Lindsay Stevenson, the captain or should I say Nakhoda of our Indian Ocean series. Today we have the honor to interview two wonderful scholars, Keelan Overton, an independent scholar in Santa Barbara, and Subah Dayal assistant professor at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at NYU. We're here to talk about Iran and the Deccan, Persianate Art, Culture, and Talent in Circulation, 1400 to 1700, a volume edited by Keelan that features not only her own work, but also that of Subah and 18 others, and which was just published in 2020 by Indiana University Press. Keelan, Subah, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. This volume, Iran and the Deccan, is a monumental tribute to the shared history of Iran and South India. It combines in-depth analysis of single individuals, text, buildings, or codices in conversation with masterful synthetic analysis, all from a truly interdisciplinary team of experts from around the world. And together you all team up to build a beautifully thick description of the Deccan as a diverse and sophisticated world. So to begin and to help many of our listeners who might not know about these relations, could you situate us in time and place? When are we? What are the main phases of this time period? What are the shared geographic poles that create this space? Sure. Well, I think I'll begin by breaking down the title and some of the main key words in the title and the time frame of the book overall. We're dealing with effectively a trans-regional story between Iran and the Deccan. And my use of Iran and the Deccan is a simplification in a way. Iran, which we can call it our source for this story, depending on the time period in question, we might be talking about what we view today as modern-day Iran. We might be talking about greater Iran, so going into Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. So that's the Iranian source so to speak in simple terms for the Deccan for those of you who are hearing about it for the first time the simplest definition would be peninsular India or southern India and for our time period in question between 1400 and 1700 we're mostly looking at what we could call the north central Deccan so in terms of time frame The book covers 300 years. And again, in the title when I say 1400 to 1700, I'm just keeping it neat. But we really need to break down this 300-year history into its phases because there is no one story of Iran-Deccan relations, there is no one Deccan. This is a very complex space. and place so we really need to contextualize our narrative accordingly. in the first century so roughly 1400 to 1500 we're dealing with the timurid world in terms of our greater iranian and central asian source and so we'll be thinking about cities like samarkand and then herat and then as we move into the timurid princes shiraz and ibrahim sultan of shiraz that geography will loom large in our story And on the flip side in the Deccan we also have a central polity the Bahmani dynasty that comes to power in the mid 
14th century, but the migration of Iranian elites really picks up steam in about the 1420s. And the Bahmanis will be during our time period in Gulbarga and then in Bidr. Then we move forward in time and our next major watershed will be, let's just call it the early 1500s on both sides of the story. So in Iran, we have the rise of the Safavid Twelver Shia state. In the Deccan, what we have is the Bahmani state will fragment into so-called successor states. There are five. We also have relations between the two sides sort of cemented in what we could call a trans-regional Shia space. Moving forward, near the end of the 16th century, the Mughals come on the scene. So now all of a sudden, Hindustan is a real factor, and Mughal encroachment will have a major impact on the Deccan sultanates, on their relations with one another, on their relations with Safavid Iran. By 1686-87, we don't have our Deccan sultanates anymore. We have Mughal hegemony in the region. But our story just doesn't end. Some of the migrants in question, who at this point aren't really migrants, they're Deccan-born, some of the things in question will have histories that surpass periodization. So this story could have gone much further into the 1700s even, but at some point you got to cut it off. <laughs> so you're describing this world of shifting geographies, expanding and geographies that grow smaller. But also, Suba, if I could ask you, this mass of time and space has to have a lot of language and different languages. So linguistically, what's going on with all these people who are going everywhere? I think the first place we could begin is probably explaining the linguistic landscape of peninsular India where we have Persian and Arabic on the one hand and Sanskrit on the other. And relatedly, we have the pan-regional literary idioms like Dakini, as well as vernaculars such as Telugu, Marathi, and Kannada. So the problem of multilingualism and its relationship to people who are moving is very interesting and complex. And in fact, I would say that in the Deccan's Islamic courts, it's yet to be studied properly, especially when we consider the relationship of a literary idiom such as Dakni and its relationship to Persian literacy. One way to think about the distinct linguistic layers of southern India is by way of analogy, a slightly imperfect one, but somewhat useful. We could compare the Deccan to the hierarchy of languages, say, in the Iberian case, where Persians at the top, the equivalent of Latin, Dakni would be the equivalent of Castilian and Aragonese would be the equivalent of Telugu and Kannada. And of course, this just helps us think about the linguistic layers, because in southern India, we also have the additional question of differences in script. Now, one of the things we may bear a caveat in mind is that tying pre-modern uh, languages very directly to notions of identity that are grounded in region or ethnicity is very difficult so as Keelan said, the later iterations of the Persianate in the 17th century leave open the possibility of the use of different linguistic registers by, say, Persian-speaking courtiers or uh, poets composing in the vernacular. Let's go back. I know we talked a lot about the time period, but what exactly is unique about these 300 years between 1400 and 1700 that results in all of these cultural, social, and religious ties? You mentioned in the volume that the economic relationships between the regions are much older 
than the 15th century. So what changes? What's going on here that you decided to bring so many people together to write about it? As you very rightly pointed out, relations between the Persian Gulf and the western coast of India have a much longer history to the 9th and 10th centuries when we look at it as a relationship of, of trade, an economic relationship. We have merchant communities from the Persian Gulf, from ports like Siraf, uh, establishing themselves in Chaul and Tane, etc. So this is not the first time that we have ships from Iran coming over to the Konkan and Malabar coast. There is a precedent in terms of trade. However, I think we can identify a major shift in the early period of this story, and that is that these the pre-existing maritime networks are now going to be buffered and bolstered and complemented by these broader imperial or sub-imperial relationships. So by 1400, we have an international Timurid sphere and the overland realm is so well connected at this point that you can have a tile technique that develops in Samarkand, moving to Tabriz and moving to Bursa. So it would sort of follow that this sort of um, aesthetic would, would show up and be there at roughly the same time as well, a few decades later. So you have great mobility as a result of the Timurid cosmopolis. But in the Deccan, you also have now not just merchant communities based in coastal regions, but you have powerful rulers in the north-central Deccan providing the lure, providing the pull. They are recruiting. So I don't want to overemphasize individual rulers, but we do have to give our due credit to rulers like Firuz Shah Bahmani and his successor Ahmad, who develop these relationships on a more state level. Firuz will build Firuzabad in a Timur-esque mode. He will patronize an astronomer from Gilan. And then his successor, Ahmad, he'll shift the capital from Gulbarga to Bidar, and he'll also shift his spiritual devotion and commitment from the Chistia order to the Nematolahis. So this is this exceptional moment, I think, in Indo-Persian history, where you have a ruler in the Deccan basically devoting himself to an order in south-central Iran. So this is the Nematolahi order and Shah Nematollah at Kirman and Mahan and those environs. So he will recruit Shah Nimotullah to come, the Shah, the Sheikh will decline, send his grandson, and eventually his son. And so you'll have this physical transmission of a Sufi order. The Nimotullahis will move after the death of Shah Nimotullah. They will move to the Deccan. Of course, that means they're going to proceed south to the coast, to Hormuz, most likely, get on the ship, cross the Arabian Sea, land on the western coast of India in a Konkan port, Goa, Chaul, Dabhol, and then proceed inland to Bidar and marry into the Bahmani royal family. So we have this really substantive spiritual link in the early 1400s between the two polities. And then we can also remember at this time the, the growing prestige of Persian and Persian cultural norms. That would be a synopsis of what changes in the 15th century, particularly in the early 15th century. 
I'm curious about the distinction between overland routes and sea routes. There are these maps of the Silk Road and Oceanic Silk Road, and they seem to be parallel to each other. But I'm curious about what the junctures are. They're not isolated, I presume. Also, you made this distinction between economic trade and then cultural trade. And I was curious about why, for example, we don't have styles of tile flowing through the Persian Gulf. That seemed like an overland route that you were tracing. So I'll start with the tiles as a kind of focus. So we know during this period of what's been called international Timurid that we have certain tile work techniques being developed in places like Samarkand. And then we have this movement where you see artists in Samarkand having to move for various reasons to places like Tabriz, and then in turn to places like Bursa in Turkey. So the movement of artists at this point overland in the Timurid sphere and in the post-Timur world is robust and significant. So that's sort of the overland pattern of movement between to the far west Turkey and then Iran and Central Asia. With Bidar, in about the same time that we see Persian or Persian-style tower work showing up in Bursa, that we also see it showing up in Bidar in the buildings of the mid-15th century. So the question becomes, how does it get there and why did it get there? To start with the why, I think we're still operating within this cultural sphere. So to paint the stage of Bidar in 1430s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you have the Prime Minister Mahmoud Gavon of Gilan exchanging letters with the luminaries of Herat and even recruiting them, not to his avail. But basically, you have this intellectual connection, and it would make sense that in exchanging letters with Jami, for example, that you'll have the exchange of maybe paper plans for buildings. You might have the exchange of patterns for monumental epigraphy to be executed in physical form on architecture. So in I'm going to jump ahead to the chapter by Sheila Blair and Jonathan Bloom. They suggest that it was a paper plan that was transmitted from most likely Khorasan to be there that set the stage for the building. But then in looking at the actual execution of the tile work there, it's so good that Sheila and Jonathan actually proposed that perhaps we have a tile maker moving to be there to oversee the production of this mosaic tile work, which itself is a very complicated process where you have a master overseeing the cutting of the tiles and then the actual assemblage of the tiles and then the mounting of the tiles. So if you are a master tile maker in Samarkand or in Herat, how would you get there? You could technically go overland and then down through Hindustan to the Deccan. But at this point, all signs indicate that your most logical route would be to go from Herat through south-central Iran, down to Hormuz in the Persian Gulf, and then get on a boat. And we have examples of this story in the case of Abdul Razak, Shah Rukh's emissary to Calicut. He goes from Herat to Kerman to Hormuz and then over. So it's a very, very long journey. I think Abdul Razak took two weeks to get from Khorasan to the Gulf, 
Then he had to wait there, of course. You know this well. You have to wait for a proper time to sail with the southwest monsoon. And if you miss your window, you're going to have to wait for months. I think he had to wait for a couple months. Then, if you look at Hormuz, you need stops. Once you pass through into the Gulf of Oman, you're going to have to have additional stops and additional ports. And then I think his crossing was maybe two weeks. But then he's ending up in a port on the Konkan, and then he's got to go in to be there. And today, <laughs> it's a schlep. If you fly into Goa and you have to cross and get into the Deccan, we're talking eight to ten hours to get to Hampi or to get to Bijapur. It takes a, quite a long time, and you have to account for the weather, most certainly. So I think the answer to your question also would change as we move forward with time, because once we're in the Safavid moment and the Mughal moment, you have a little bit more mobility in the overland route, depending on who's fighting who at what time and where. For some of these exchanges, you could go overland, and some Iranian elites do go to Hindustan first. I can give you the example of the painter Farouk Beg, who's Horasani trained, who proceeds to Kabul, then proceeds to Lahore under Akbar, who then goes down to the Deccan to Bijapur, and then eventually goes back to Agra to be in Jahangir's employ. But for the majority of the elites that have been considered in this book, when they're making the move, they're taking the maritime route. This is why, in a sense, the story of the Deccan and Iran is a quintessentially Indian Ocean story. And it really talks about the importance of taking the Indian Ocean seriously. A lot of people don't think of the Deccan and Iran as being in a single zone, even though, as you mentioned, the Nematullahi order that spends after the death of Shah Nematullah, his children go to the Bahmani domains, and they reign there until the 19th century. From the 19th century onwards, when you're talking about the history of Sufism in Iran, the Nematullahis are the major, if not one of the two major, influences on Iranian history. And you can only understand that if we think of the Deccan and Iran as being a part of a single zone of exchange. So how does our understanding of not just Iran and, and South Asia, but also global history benefit by thinking of the Deccan and Iran within a single frame? You just touched on another gain, and that is that this story can be integrated into Indian Ocean histories and certainly should be. And as we all know, connected histories, Indian Ocean histories, transregional histories are increasingly desirable and relevant. Suba's Post, I believe, has Indian Ocean in its title. We're in a moment of a sort of paradigm shift. A lot of scholars have been doing this kind of work for a long time. But I think it's most certainly gaining currency. And while imperial history is very important, and while gunpowder empire comparisons are very important, I think the Ottoman Safavid Mughal frame is getting a bit tired in some respects. That being said, it's necessary, especially for students. When you're teaching an intro to early modern Islamic art or early modern history, it's easier to teach comparatively Mughals, Ottomans, and Safavids. This kind of history that we're doing here in this book, this Indian Ocean history, this transregional history, is very messy. You can't identify singular trends or patterns or rules. Everything is quite subtle. 
But I think it's very useful to operate and respect and bear in mind the imperial frames and the comparative approach, but also what I found most enjoyable about this project was feeling like I was getting to really know these individuals and these things beyond these rather staid ruler-centric narratives. And I think in terms of teaching in the classroom, these personal human stories, what are the forces that determine or shape why a saint would move, why a poet would move? And you can, in a way, put yourself in the shoes or the footsteps, maybe, of some of these elites, and it becomes a bit more accessible than just talking about rulers and their dates and their battles. For me, the question is, for the period roughly from 1400 to 1800, one of the ways that the Indian Ocean was studied was through the archives of the European companies. So you would go read the Portuguese sources or the archives of the Dutch East India Company or the English East India Company. And that would be the kind of landmark works on the pepper trade or these economic history oriented range of studies that did that. I think what Keelan's volume does is open up, first of all, the kinds of sources. What happens when you see how a book travels or a technique travels or what happens when you follow a circuit of patronage across these spaces. And in that sense, it also helps us not reify the ocean because a lot of the earlier economic histories were focused on literal societies all along, say, the Persian Gulf or the western coast of India or the Coromandel in the Bay of Bengal. But one of the things that the volume does is bridge that divide there's been a huge growth of work on the Persianate, on the question of the Persian cosmopolis, its relationship to vernaculars. But that work still doesn't necessarily talk to the large amount of work that was done on, say, the company archives from in the same time period. And they're all happening at the same time. And I think Sanjay's work and Muzaffar Alam's work really helped do that kind of collaboration and Keelan brings across a very important question of materiality in the volume that, again, moves us beyond just like extracting the narrative from the sources, but also just thinking about, well, what are these sources? How are they written? How are they produced? And what their afterlives have been? Actually, before we get to materiality, though, Suba, specifically to you, when we're talking about these movements and moving beyond the company archives, that's where language comes up. And so before I actually get to my question, though, first, a really simple question. These elites that are coming from Iran and, and other countries, are they learning Dakani? Are they learning local vernaculars or are they just being stuck up? Uh, <laughs> Snooty Iranians <laughs> in yeah, other parts of the world comparing <laughs> how everything's better in Iran. <laughs> I think there's something to be said about the limits of multilingualism. There are many different types of people who are Persian speaking in this period, as Kilan has explained. But I think tying language very neatly to region or ethnicity, we get into murky waters for the pre-modern period. So are there Iranians learning Dakni? There are certainly second, third generation Persian speaking courtiers who are patronizing certain kinds of texts or possibly composing themselves in the pan-regional literary idiom. Philip Wagner has an article on the patronage of a particular Telugu text as well. 
But this doesn't mean this is some, you know, kumbaya and everyone's just speaking each other's languages and these lines are not entirely porous and seamless. So we cannot make the case that while oftentimes in popular narratives about the syncretic culture of the Deccan and so far, these sort of images are evoked of Persian and Marathi and Deccani all being kind of porous. I would caution against that because that's a modern sort of regional nationalism rather than the actual historical iterations of multilingualism, which are often circumscribed. There are representations of Iranian patrons in Dakini. There's also the poets themselves discussing, and Sunil Sharma's article also talks about what they think about the relationship to Persian and what it means to compose across these two registers. In the prefatory notes of a lot of the narrative poems, you find this articulation of working across these different registers from various Dakni poets. In terms of specific examples, actually, of multilingualism and translation, your article, Sabah, looks at the Shahnameh and its really interesting afterlives, in a sense, in the Deccan, not just in terms of translation, but also Deccani responses and adaptations of it. So can you first just introduce this to our listeners, many of whom are used to the Shahnameh's reception in modern Iran and how it's mangled by nationalists, and maybe talk more about this really important part of its history in South India? So my article has two parts. It's basically first giving a broad survey of the range of texts that take the Shahnameh as an inspiration, as a text that is being not translated, imitated certainly in form, in terms of meter and questions of composition. The first iteration is of kind of lexicons and commentaries written in Persian, often patronized by Iranian elites who have come to the Deccan courts and have produced these compendiums on the vocabulary and so forth. And there are several examples in manuscript. The second is the actual text roughly going from the late 16th century to the end of the 18th century, where you have many different poets thinking about the Shahnameh as a model. And one of the poets that I work on and discuss in the article, Nusrati, writes a very long narrative poem or Masnavi in the second half of the 17th century, where he is recording contemporary battles with the Mughals. He is sort of memorializing and producing representations of contemporary events that are happening, like he laid out the chronology for us, in a period when the Mughals loom large, but these sultanates are expanding further beyond the north-central part of the Deccan. So, and in it, he talks about the question of bearing the Shahnameh in mind, but also bearing an articulation of a competition between Persian and Dakini and the choice of composing in the latter. So one of the things he talks about, and he evokes also Amir Khosrow's text earlier, and as well as Isami's text, which are sort of serving as models within the subcontinent itself, And he discusses the fact that he's writing this poem and I'm instead of writing about legends and of course, there's this kind of expression of, well, I'm recording these actual events that are happening and I'm turning these contemporary actors into heroes. So one of the things I've tried to emphasize in the article is that the aesthetic and literary goals of the text are probably of more or at least equal importance than our desire to just look at them as historical. So, and that's the kind of 
interplay that happens. And in the 17th century, we have a range of these poems that are recording contemporary events in the Deccan, in the Shahnameh form, not in Persian, but in Dakni. Could you actually just expand a little bit about meter and responding in meter? And I mean, this is the fascinating thing about multilingualism in Islamic context is that sound is so important and what it means to be composing in a different language, but with the same meter. So when you look at other forms in Dakni as well, Masnavi is the dominant form in which we find most, about 70% of the texts that we have in Dakni are in the Masnavi form. But in the case of the poems that are based on historical events, you have the use of Indic vocabulary, which are non-Persian words, as well as Persian and Arabic words that are used in the poem's composition. Now, there are other examples that Sunil Sharma talks about on how the Indic words as well as the Persian words are used in specific forms such as ghazal. One of the things that needs to be studied more carefully is Persian literacy, the study of these meters and how particular linguistic registers are entering into these Dakini texts. The volume looks at encounters not only at these virtual sites like Suba has just talked about, poetry, storytelling, painting, but also at physical sites like cities, court, and more specifically shrines. And several authors in the book explore this idea of an Iranian archetype in architecture and how it's adapted to the Deccan to produce something that resists classification. So is this a process of translation, adaptation, innovation? How do you envision the interplay between actual and virtual points of encounters? And can you speak about the directionality of these encounters? Are the flows moving only in one direction? We talked about the Nimrasallah, he's moving back to Iran, but is that also the case with material culture as well? Yes, the volume does look at what we could call these Persian or Persianate archetypes moving to the Deccan and then being adapted and translated there. So just to give you some examples across disciplines in the field of literature, we can look at Shahnameh, Golestan, Hamze, etc., etc. For architecture, we can look at the transmission of building plans, like a madrasa plan, as discussed by Sheila Blair and Jonathan Bloom. There are more in the Deccan. There are Chahel Satoons, there are Hash Behesht. The book doesn't cover all of them. But again, in terms of practicality, you can consider how a paper plan can move easily. Also, in terms of architecture, in the book, we focus on the transmission of mosaic tile work. And this is a great example, probably my favorite example of transmission and adaptation in the Deccan. There are many examples of mosaic tile work surfaces in Bidr and even later in uh, Hyderabad in the Qutub Shahi tomb complex. And in Bidr specifically at the Madrasa Mahmoud Gavon, the execution of the mosaic tile work on um, the once full standing facade was exceptional. And when you look at this mosaic tile work, for those of us who work on Samarkand or Herat or Tabriz, it looks familiar in the sense of the way you have certain scripts, so this being Thuluth or Sols, 
and monumental size on a scrolled background, that's familiar. The Quranic verses for selection are familiar. The concept of the foundation inscription is familiar. What's unfamiliar in some ways are some of the glazes. So you get differences in glaze because of the environment of the Deccan. But what's most striking in the adaptation that I personally like the most throughout uh, the Deccan, especially in Bidar, is the framing of the panels of mosaic in basalt. So this is a local hard black stone of the region. So this is what I would call this perfect adaptation of the rule. We can also think of books moving and compositions moving from the Persianate world to the Deccan and being modified accordingly. So Rachel Parikh in her essay in the volume, she's looking at Falname. In the Safavid orbit, the Falname is it's an imperial text, right? We have Safavid versions and we have Ottoman illustrated versions. And what Rachel does is look at this hitherto quote unquote peripheral example of the Golconda version of the Fahname. And again, when you look at that manuscript, many things about it are familiar for those of you steeped in the Persian and Ottoman visual language, but then you'll see aspects of foliage, aspects of fauna, um, the mango, the, the palette. These things will tell us, aha, this is a decany example. In art history, sometimes influence is viewed as a dirty word, influence being something that's transmitted from A to B, and the B side is blind. It's what happens in the B side is derivative. I would completely counter that notion of influence in a pejorative sense in this context, because we are in a Persianate orbit and things are flowing and moving and it's not just Iran influencing or dominating the Deccan. In this instance, what some of these Deccani courts and artists and contexts do with what's brought in from Iran is extremely sophisticated. So we would never call that derivative or second rate. What resonated with me as the editor was noticing how these processes of visual mediation, translation, adaptation also have their own sort of complementary processes in the literary world, in the things that Sunil Sharma and Subha Dayal work on. This interdisciplinarity, in a sense, actually points back to the sphere wherein there's this constant circulation of not just people, but also architectural plans, objects, books, etc. So, your essay in the volume with Christine Rose Beers, you look at a specific object. I think our listeners would actually really enjoy just hearing about what's called the St. Andrew's Quran and the many lives of this one single object. Uh, so could you tell us what is the St. Andrew's Quran and what is its journey? And why is it called St. Andrew's? It's called the St. Andrew's Quran. Um, that's arbitrary. We can call it many different things, but actually at the end of this explanation, you'll understand why St. Andrew's Quran in many ways is the simplest way to designate it, because it is such an object of so many histories and agencies that its present-day owner uh, makes it a little bit neat to classify as such. So it's been in the University of St. Andrew's since the early 1800s. For quite some time, it's been thought of as a Timurid manuscript associated with Abu Sa'id. Why? Because the colophon says Abu Sa'id with his name and titles and gives a corresponding date. 
But if you open it and you look at the colophon, you can tell that these two lines, the patron and the date, have been tampered. And this kind of tampering could be enhanced through various scientific techniques, which we did in, in the article. So then the question became, well, if it's, if it's been tampered to Abu Sa'id, mid-15th century, what is it? And then you get into a process of more conventional art history where style, the sectarian nature of the colophon, and the biography of the scribe lead you to a reattribution, which the reattribution proposed is between 1520 and 1540 in a major Safavid center like Tabriz or Herat. And mainly that hinges on the biography of the scribe, who is very, very famous, in fact, and his signature in the colophon is, is sound. The trajectory of this book helps me personally to look at the Deccan in a more robust and round way, an expansive way. So my dissertation was on the golden age, so to speak, under Ibrahim II in the capital city of Bijapur. Um, but this book literally took me down. It took me down and beyond. It took me into spaces that I was less familiar with. It made me think about the Mughal library as a system in the Deccan. It made me think about uh, provincial states like Savanur, um, and then progressively towards Mysore. So it, it, re- it really expanded my view of the Deccan and of Deccan Sultanate history. And what I liked about it ultimately was that it was a project that hinged on the study of these courts and these quote-unquote greats and these great patrons, but it also had um, a history that was unknown and uncharted and took me and took us in new directions. And as I was thinking about the later life of the manuscript, I was lucky in that I was reading work like Subaz, where I was going into the later Deccan. So I could kind of imagine this thing moving and the new players and spaces that it operated in. That's what I mean by it being such an expansive and challenging thing. In the sense, I think I said this in the conclusion that the the book took the lead, which I really like that notion of just letting the object tell its own history. I think often as art historians, and maybe even historians, we apply our taxonomy, we apply our theme, we have a set perception of something, and we make the material work within our frames. Um, But this was an example of an object really pushing us to just let it speak for itself. So it was very fulfilling, very challenging. The story that you've told here about the St. Andrew's Quran is incredibly rich, as is the one that Soba told about the Shahnameh. The book brought together so many different disciplines. I would like you to reflect on what that brought to the volume. You just can't study the Persian at Deccan without people who work in areas like Suba and Sunil Sharma. You have to have architectural history. You have to have the historians, the foundational historians, past and present. So many of the genres or the disciplines that are talked about in the book, whether it's art history or art history in terms of looking at portable objects or languages and literatures or the art of calligraphy, the practice of calligraphy, the writing of poetry— These disciplines and genres that we too often separate in our own work today are completely intermingled and intertangled in this sphere. To give an example, 
Pavlon Firouze's essay is a really a brilliant exercise in interdisciplinarity because she's not only covering Nimotolahi Sufism, the poetry of Shah Nimotolah, the execution of Shah Nimotolah's poetry on the building. What I really like about some of the chapters, I would say, is that several of them are collaborative chapters. So we all know of the wonderful relationship and partnership between Muzaffar Alam and Sanjay Subramaniam, and Sheila Blair and Jonathan Bloom have worked together on many things. I would say that uh, Hamid Reza Ghali Shani's essay on the calligrapher Khalilullah was extremely rewarding, I hope, for everyone involved. And that was a sense where we needed to bridge various gaps between calligraphy as practice, calligraphy as history, poetry, literature, politics. That essay has so many inherent mediations and accommodations in its actual execution. I think this is the way of the future. I think we all know it. I think collaboration between us is key. I can't imagine not having collaboration with conservators and people who work in physicality and on physicality as an art historian. I hope to collaborate with anthropologists in the future on topics related to this book. I would want to collaborate with Suba again on literary studies. It's, um, it's key. Thank you again, Kilian and Suba, for joining us and honoring us with your presence on the podcast. For our listeners, the name of the edited volume is Iran and the Deccan, Persianate Art, Culture, and Talent in Circulation, 1400 to 1700. It was published by Indiana University Press uh, just this year in 2020. So make sure to get your hands on it. Thank you, everyone. Ah, his